This is the Bible Book Club. And we're in the Book of Numbers. Welcome Welcome to the club. In chapters 22 and 23, the Moabite king, King Balak, was a little panicked over the Israelites as they were camped. They were kind of a a menacing. Yeah, there's a lot of them. A lot of people down there. He summoned supernatural help, hiring the best seer money could buy, and that was Balaam. Balaam resists. He goes, he beats his donkey. It was like an episode of Shrek in the process. He proves that while he may be a seer, when it comes to seeing the Lord, he certainly is blind. But God uses him anyway to prophesy about Israel. And Balaam delivers seven messages two of which we covered in the last episode and the rest we will cover in this Yep, episode. in this one, we're going to cover five more messages since a couple of them are really short. But the whole purpose of these was that God intended for people such as Balaam and the Moabites, people outside of Israel, to hear of his blessing on Abraham and his descendants, the people of Israel. Remember, Israel is to stand out among the nations. And even though the Israelites' relationship with God was less than perfect, that was between them and God and not out for common knowledge among the Canaanites. So all they knew is what they heard, in this case from Balak and Balaam. To the rest of the world, God showed only fierce support and protection of his treasured possession. Now, King Balak, like Pharaoh, was attempting to counteract the blessing of Abraham by reducing Israel's descendants. The attempt of Balak to curse the Israelites was an assault against God. By attempting to curse Israel, Balak and Balaam were on their way to bringing a curse on themselves. For God said in Genesis 12, 3 to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. By attempting to curse Israel, Balak and Balaam were doing what the enemy had been attempting from the fall, but it will be to no avail. So picking up at the end of chapter 23. In verse 27, then Balak said to Balaam, come, let me take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God to let you curse them for me from there. And Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, overlooking the wasteland. Balaam said, build me seven altars here and prepare seven bulls and seven rams for me. Balak did as Balaam said and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Of course, Balak wants to try again. He is just that kind of guy. But he chooses another location, perhaps. How about Peor, he thinks. Now, Peor was the Moabite center for the worship of the god Baal. And we're going to hear a lot about him. In this case, the Spirit of God came upon Balaam. And this oracle and the ones that follow are full of divine revelation. So moving on to chapter 24, Balaam's third message from God is that Israel is blessed. Now, when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not resort to divination as at other times, but turned his face toward the wilderness. When Balaam looked out and saw Israel encamped tribe by tribe, the Spirit of God came on him and he spoke this message. The 
prophecy of Balaam, son of Beor, the prophecy of one whose eye sees clearly, the prophecy of one who hears the word of God, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate, and whose eyes are opened. How beautiful are your tents, Jacob, your dwelling places, Israel. Like the valleys, they spread out like gardens beside the river." Like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters, water will flow from their buckets. Their seed will have abundant water. Their king will be greater than Agag. Their kingdom will be exalted. God brought them out of Egypt. They have the strength of a wild ox. They devour hostile nations and break their bones in pieces with their arrows. They pierce them. Like a lion, they crouch and lie down like a lioness who dares to rouse them. May those who bless you be blessed and those who curse you be cursed. The third message describes how Israel will be a beautiful, plentiful, and powerful nation in the promised land. So powerful that there's a prophecy about the defeat of an Amalekite king, King Agag, which actually is going to be fulfilled in Saul's reign in 1 Samuel 15. And that's why this prophecy and some of these others are very prophetic, because they actually foretell the future. How God delivered, protects, and makes Israel victorious is another point in this prophecy. Lastly, he also goes over how those who bless Israel will be blessed and those who curse Israel will be cursed. So be forewarned, Balaam and Balak, you're in trouble. This was a promise from God to Abraham, and it's going to be fulfilled. All right, King Balak is going to react. Verse 10, then Balak's anger burned against Balaam. He struck his hands together and said to him, I summoned you to curse my enemies, but you have blessed them these three times. Now leave it at once and go home. I said I would reward you handsomely, but the Lord has kept you from being rewarded. Balaam answered Balak, did I not tell the messengers you sent me? Even if Balak gave me all the silver and gold in his palace, I could not do anything of my own accord, good or bad, and go beyond the command of the Lord, and I must say only what the Lord says. Now I am going back to my people, but come, let me warn you of what this people will do to your people in the days to come. Balak is beside himself. This is not going the way he wanted, and he sends Balaam packing without pay, which I'm sure made Balaam furious. But God is not done talking. And before Balaam can leave, he descends into a trance and begins to prophesy more. Balaam's fourth message, which is the greatest message, is a messianic prophecy. Verse 15. Then he spoke this message. The prophecy of Balaam, son of Beor, the prophecy of one whose eyes see clearly. The prophecy of one who hears the word of God, who has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate, and whose eyes are opened. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the people of Sheph. Edom will be conquered. Seir, his enemy, will be conquered, but Israel will grow strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. This prophecy says it is from one who has the knowledge from the Most High, which greatly 
greatly intensifies what Balaam was seeing and what his mind was comprehending. The fourth message describes a scepter or a king and a coming deliverer like a star who will bring victory over enemies. And while David was a king who filled some of these victories over nations, this is a vision of a messianic ruler. Revelations 22.16 says this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. So when it talks about a star in this, it is really talking about that seed from Jacob that will be Jesus. Christ continues the kingship of David and delivers a much larger victory, one for the entire world. That this vision was given through such an unlikely pagan seer such as Balaam is crazy. And remember, this is the same guy that couldn't even see an angel in the road in the last episode and was beating his donkey. The fact that he was incapable of such insight just last episode and yet chosen for the privilege of this vision makes it even more miraculous. The mention of the nations, Moab and Edom, in this future prophecy would apply to any of the enemies of the people of God. So as it says Moab and and Edom, it really is talking about all the future enemies. Balaam is now on a roll, and it seems that the next three messages just spill out of him. And I like to picture Balak just standing there going, no, no, stop, stop. Because it just gets worse. Unlike the others, these oracles are curses against the nations and the results of victories for Israel. The final irony is that Balak had plotted to put a curse on Israel and instead succeeded in being cursed. Balaam's fifth message is about the destruction of the Amalekites. Verse 20, Then Balaam saw Amalek and spoke his message. Amalek was first among the nations, but their end will be utter destruction. Balaam's sixth message is about the destruction of the Kenites. Then he saw the Kenites and spoke his message. Your dwelling place is secure. Your nest is set in a rock. Yet you Kenites will be destroyed when Asher takes you captive. Asher is the god of Assyria, which is another surprise prophecy that won't take place for centuries. Balaam's seventh message is that God alone sustains life. Verse 23, then he spoke his message. Alas, who can live when God does this? Ships will come from the shores of Cyprus. They will subdue Asher and Eber, but they too will come to ruin. This prophecy ultimately referred to the nations to the West, like Rome, and could be a prediction actually of Alexander the Great's conquests. The message meaning is the same no matter what nation. All nations will supplant each other, but all will come to ruin as God will have the final victory over every nation. And of course, that is the seventh of the seven messages, the number of perfection in God's eyes. And so Balaam is all done. Verse 25, then Balaam got up and returned home. Balak went on his way. Gordon Wenham summed up this singularly unusual Bible story of Balaam like this. It's just a summary of all the seven strange messages we just read in this entire story, actually. And this is what he said. I loved it. The charming naivety 
of this story disguises a brilliance of literary composition and theological reflection. The narrative is both very funny and deadly serious. The stupidity and stubbornness of the human characters Balaam and Balak is accentuated by the behavior of the donkey. This animal, legendary for its dullness and obstinacy, is shown to have more spiritual insight than the super prophet Balaam, whom King Balak is prepared to hire at enormous expense to curse Israel. Yet this idiotic, money-grubbing, heathen seer is inspired by the Spirit of God with a vision of Israel's future that is truly messianic in its dimensions. Such a crazy story. Now note, Balaam described himself as the man whose eye is open, who hears the words of God, who has knowledge of the Most High. He said that in one of his oracles. If God could give Balaam such insight, how much more will the Holy Spirit do for us? If only we would ask. I just kept thinking, I'm I'm surprised that Balaam wasn't worried that King Balak was going to just kill him when he wasn't doing what he had asked him to do. Yeah, I think Balak, King Balak would be an interesting study because he seems like such a dramatic, wimpy guy. Yeah, because then <laughs> he does so nothing and he just he kind of like nothing. retreats. In. He does not, nothing. However, Moab is not going away. Yeah, so they're going to be a thorn in Israel's side for oh quite gosh, a while. Oh gosh, it's going to get ugly really quick here. Chapter Who 25. was Moab descended from again? So remember, Moab was the descendant of Lot. So remember, way back in Genesis season one, go back and listen. If you haven't listened, uh, Lot uh, ends up kind of, you know, fleeing Sodom and Gomorrah and ends up living in a cave with his two daughters and his daughters get him drunk and he has incest and he has a son with, he has a son with each and each of them. And actually, I think the other one is the Kenites. And with one daughter, he has a son named Moab and they become the Moabites. And we're going to see, again, the daughter's promiscuity is then becomes, they worship Baal, the uh, Moabites, which is sexual worship. We're going to get into that really quick. All right. Chapter 25 is an end and a beginning. Here we go. The story of the first generation that died in the wilderness is finished. We're done with them. This is the beginning of a whole new series of wickedness that will lead to Israel's punishment with this new generation. Up until this point, all the rebellions against God have been just grumbling against God, which we thought were really stupid and really unnecessary, but that was kind of the extent of them. This is a story of the great apostasy, Israel's first abandonment of God. It's an offense much more serious than grumbling and complaining. This is the beginning of Israel's struggle with the first and greatest commandment, which is you shall have no other gods before me. Like a house of cards, when this card falls, when that first commandment falls, the whole house falls. Is this Israel's first abandonment because they did the golden calf? And they've so I'm going to get into a little nuance about the golden calf after we read this next story about Moab. And there's a little nuance about that. This one is considered the first true apostasy where they actually start worshiping another God. And I'm going to I'm going to explain why. But first, I want to read the story about how Moab seduces Israel and Israel abandons God. Chapter 25. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in 
sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices of their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before the gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. Okay, so this is the first time since the golden calf, like you mentioned, that we've had this kind of incident, but this is much worse. In the golden calf incident, Israel worshipped the calf as an image of God or a conduit of God in place of Moses. And that was all in Exodus 32. So go back and listen to that. But in that case, remember, Moses was up on the mountain and he didn't come down for a long time. And they were getting nervous that he wasn't. So they thought they needed a replacement, somebody or something to act as that conduit between God and them. So they built this calf, which, you know, Aaron says, now you can worship Yahweh through this calf. So in that case, they say, the commentaries, that it was, yes, wrong because they built an image of God, but they were still supposedly kind of trying to worship their God. So it's really about their heart posture because they actually thought they were still worshiping the same God. In this case, they know they're worshiping a different God and they're they doing did, it in they a different They did break way. that rule of building an image. They weren't supposed to build an image. Here, they're worshiping another God, which is called apostasy. I mentioned that before. The seduction of the Israelite men by the Moabite women is a physical, visual dramatization of spiritual apostasy. And it is just the beginning of their spiritual battle with Baal. The God Baal of Peor will become the bane of Israel's life. The worship of this God will lead to Israel's judgment and exile at the hands of the Assyrians and Babylonians. And it all started here in Numbers 25. It's like the enemy got a foothold into their promised Eden before they even got a taste of the fruit. Now, in Numbers 31, we're going to learn that the creative idea came of this Moabite temptation came from none other than our profiteering prophet, the blind seer who had been made a fool of by the wise ath, none other than Balaam. Perhaps he did not like the power God had over his mouth after he finished. Perhaps he hoped to recoup the money he lost from King Balaam, refusing to pay him. But Balaam was a man of manipulation, and the plan he devised was masterful. What the men of Moab could not do, defeat the men of Israel because they just weren't as numerous or strong, the women could. This whole plan was his. He told the Moabs that if you tempt the men of Israel into worshiping your God Baal, then their God will become angry with them for their unfaithfulness and he might turn his back on them. And if they don't have their God, and and you know, remember, Balaam had had a taste of their God. Their God forced him to speak words that he probably didn't want to speak because he wasn't going to get paid for it. So Balaam probably walks away from this really mad, like I traveled all this way. I spent all this time. This is going to ruin my reputation. I couldn't put a curse on these people. And so he probably walked away trying to think, I got to do something about this or my reputation as a seer and a curse maker is going to be ruined. And so he thinks about it. Hey, you guys have these women who can tempt these men and distract them 
from the war that they're going to create on all these other nations. So you think he went after King Balak and told him, hey, oh, we know he does. Numbers 31. Do it's going to come out. So I'm just giving you a little prequel. I mean, a little uh, a, he- a heads up about what's going to come in Numbers 31. This was his thing. Now, let me tell you about this sacred prostitution that the Moabite women are going to tempt the Israelites into. Sacred prostitution was a common feature of Canaanite religion. Baalism is a fertility cult that was practiced by Moab through sacred prostitution. The people of Moab worshiped Baal with sacred acts of sex led by temple priestesses. The temple prostitutes or priestesses were adept in the art of seduction. Through these women of Moab, Israel became yoked with Moab. The verb yoked means bound together as a team of oxen are yoked in plowing. So once these women started this, the guys were hooked. This wasn't like a one night stand. This is like they are into it. This is a lot more fun than keeping the tabernacle rules. In this case, Israel is now yoked to pagan people in the worship of their God. In other words, they are cheating on the Israelite women while at the same time cheating on God. It was a physical and spiritual double whammy. So here's God's response. Verse four, the Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of these people, kill them and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, each of you must put to death those of your people who have yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. So we get a little hint there. It says, take all the leaders of these people. So it wasn't just, these were smart priestesses. They didn't just go ever after the average Joe. They went after the tribal leaders. So this is why this has kind of turned Israel upside down and become so serious so quickly. God's response was quick and final. The leaders who broke their covenant with God were like a cancer in the body of God's people. They must be cut out or they would infect everyone. The camp purity was already at risk. The people were being contaminated with this sin. The sentence for the men is somewhat unclear, but the men were killed, possibly stoned, and definitely displayed for the entire nation to witness. But before the execution could take place, the unthinkable happened. This is the scene. Moses and an assembly are weeping at the entrance to the court of the tabernacle. So picture it. And there was much to weep about. Apostasy, death sentences to the leaders, and a plague are destroying the recently victorious nation of happy campers. Remember, right before this, they've ha- they had had a huge victory. Then we kind of had that segue, you know, with Balaam. Look and Balaam. But at the same time, the camp is in great position to take over the Canaanites and move forward with this new generation. When suddenly there is a commotion outside the tabernacle. Keep in mind, we are on holy ground at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Verse six, then an Israelite man brought into the camp a Midianite women right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. 
When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and followed the Israelite to the tent. He drove the spear into both of them, right through the Israelite man and into the woman's stomach. Then the plague against the Israelites was stopped, but those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. The commentaries about this were so fun to read. Here's what went down between the man and the woman described in this scene. The Israelite man, Zimri, the son of a Simeonite leader, brought the woman right up to the sanctuary. This is just a simple statement, but there is a lot more that must have happened. This was an unclean move, if ever there was one. And if you don't know what I mean by an unclean move, go back and listen to season three about Leviticus because the temple is supposed to be kept pure at all times. It wasn't a temple back then. It was a tabernacle, a tent. Um, And to bring a woman like this in front of them and whatever they were doing, it was not good. It, it It was like blasphemy to the 29th degree. All right. This man was probably on his way to his own tent. And again, because he was the son of a leader, that tent would have been close to the tabernacle. Clearly, based on the shock of Moses and the assembly who were weeping there, Zimri was already drunk with lust and blatantly engaged in some kind of sexual embrace in the manner of Baal worship before he continued on to his tent to finish what he had started. Now, the woman, Cosby, we're going to learn her name in a minute, is a Midianite, but the Midianites and the Moabites were allied at this point against Israel, and it is thought that this woman probably was a high priestess. Zimri's contempt for the tabernacle, the covenant of the Lord and the people is unparalleled at this point. His sin was deliberate and he was flaunting his rebellion against God in front of the entire community. And so when you think about like up until this point, they've been all about protecting the tabernacle and fighting this war and all in with God for all of a sudden the leaders of the camp to become so crazy about this other God, it was a super elite physical tempting thing that had taken over them. And that's why it was so dangerous. In fact, by bringing the practices of Baal into the camp, Zimri, the son of uh, a leader and his most likely priestess partner, were probably attempting to transform the worship of Yahweh into the pattern of sexual rites that were popular in Canaan. They weren't just having fun. They were trying to indoctrinate Israel into this other kind of religion that they were really loving. It was alarming how far Israel was at risk for falling and how fast it could happen. And apparently Moses was traumatized because he doesn't even do anything. It's like he's frozen. Of course, they were weeping at the at the tent, but he's like paralyzed. And it's actually Phineas who reacts. He was a young killer priest with quick reflexes and a very strong arm. It is his job as a Levite to protect the Holy Tabernacle. Again, if you don't know, we've talked about that a little bit in Numbers, but go back to Leviticus. Well, it's a- and it, there's kind of a weight to that too, because the priests aren't even allowed to be in the presence of a dead body. And yet here he goes yes. inside the tabernacle where, that, I mean, that's like the holiest place. Well, they're right? outside of the tabernacle. Oh, they're outside they're actually, when he They're kills actually them. outside. And, but yet he goes and kills on behalf of God, which makes him unclean, impure, 
here. Oh, totally. And then he can't work. Totally. He has to go do all the sacrifices and the cleansing. Correct. Well, this is the cool thing. We've talked about how there's a hierarchy of Levites and, you know, there's several tribes of the Levites who just protect the tabernacle and move the, the, the holy stuff. And then there's the priests who actually do, you know, like you said, all the um, the uh, sacrifices. Well, Phineas, it is the job of Levites to protect the holy tabernacle. But Phineas, the son of the current high priest, Eleazar, has inherited Eleazar's old position position as head of the Levites in charge of guarding the sanctuary. So here he is the top dog in charge of guarding the sanctuary and also a priest. Phineas had probably trained for this his whole life. Never probably thought he had to use his skills because who would who would be dumb enough to actually put the tabernacle at such risk? He instinctively responded as only a priest could. He grabs a spear, probably from a soldier who was standing nearby, and literally runs after them and kebabs them both in the act of what every commentary assumes they were doing in Zimri's tent. The fact that he kills both at one time is vehemently stressed, telling us that the spear was large. The force he used was tremendous. He had to go through Zimri and into her. And the two of them were in the act of becoming one and oblivious to his approach. So into it were they. The added detail about the spear piercing Cosby's, the woman's stomach, is much discussed because... Most commentaries interpreting this feel that it was God's just punishment for worshiping fertility because it didn't go into her heart. It went into her womb. Crazy story. And as you were talking about that, I was getting the vision of, so Phineas is supposed to be guarding the sanctuary, the tabernacle. And I I kind of was comparing it in my head to us needing to guard our hearts. And we're kind of like Phineas needing to guard our hearts. And if there's something that's coming against what we're supposed to be guarding, We need to take a spear and just slice right through it so that we can... Kebab it. Yeah, kebab it. That's a good word. (laughs) Yeah, that's what one commentary said. Oh my gosh, I said that's really exactly what he did. Let's keep going in verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites. Since he was zealous for my honor among them as I am, I did not put an end to them in my zeal. Therefore, tell him I am making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of lasting peace priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. I love that word zealous. And it kind of applies to what you said, you know, do we need to be zealous for the, um, you know, the sin that enters our heart? It, it This is the first time that word is actually used in the Bible. And there were not, um, these were not your average priests. They could, when protecting the purity of the tabernacle and God's honor, be violent, which we don't picture priests as being violent, but they love the Lord's so much. And I don't know, they must have been working out on their spare time. Maybe I guess, oh, they had to work out because they had to lift yeah. all the holy things. They, it, that stuff was heavy. It was yeah, all it was made heavy, of like right? all this metal and then wrapped in more metal and yes. more. Yeah. Zealous for the Lord means this fervent and fanatical, but in a good way. And Phineas was. Phineas's zeal demonstrated his greater fear of the Lord. He was not afraid to act when not to act would be to sin against God. And his reward was the priestly line for his family forever and peace. His act is later credited as righteousness in Psalm 106. 
By shedding blood in his zeal, Phineas not only avenged God, but basically atoned for the sin of the people. He didn't have to sacrifice animals because sadly he sacrificed two people. The couple were in effect the human sacrifice for the sin they were committing. Phineas restored God's covenant with his people and the plague stopped but not before 24,000 had died, the highest number of deaths ever suffered by the Israelites during their long, painful journey from Egypt. Paul's warning to us about what the Israelites did from is from 1 Corinthians 10, 8. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. Paul just summed up, I think the last five chapters that we've read, grumbling, idolatry, the snakes. He's talking about this journey that Moses went through. Paul's warning, no idolatry, no immorality, no testing, no grumbling. It's all an example to us. Verse 14, the name of the Israelite who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, son of Salu, the leader of the Simeonite family. And the name of the Midianite woman who was put to death was Cosby, daughter of Zur, a tribal chief of the Midianite family. The Lord said to Moses, treat the Midianites as enemies and kill them. They treated you as enemies when they deceived you in the Peor incident involving their sister Cosby, the daughter of the Midianite leader, the woman who was killed when the plague came as a result of that incident. So we're going to get into this in the next episode, just how, you know, there's blessings that come down through the family. And then there's also mistakes that kind of affect the family. And the family of Eleazar, the priest, will give thanks, probably gave a lot of thanks once this plague was over for the honor that was brought to their family through Phineas's quick action. And the family of Simeon will bear the shame for the dishonor brought to their family from Zimri, the son of one of the leaders. And Cosby, her name means my lie or deception. Her family and all of the Midianites are forever cursed as enemies of Israel. This command about the Midianites must have been just a little conflicting for Moses because remember, his wife's family were Midianites and his sons were half Midianite. Jethro, his father-in-law, advised him, remember early on in his journey in Exodus, and his brother-in-law um, had guided them through the desert. So the Midianite people were related to Moses. The apostasy fail that we just read about will fall into Israel's past in the next episode. However, Israel's dance with the god Baal will become a problem in Judges, Kings, Chronicles, Jeremiah, and it'll be talked about a lot throughout the rest of the Old Testament, primarily because Baal was the god of fertility and the weather, both of major importance to the ancient world for survival. 
does our culture have a hidden bail today? When we feel out of control or under threat, the temptation to turn away from God to find solutions can be really strong. Whether it's control or comfort we're after, it's God we should turn to for what we need. We tend to want to look for safety and security in all kinds of places except God. This is a hidden form of idolatry. Even when life is sweet, we can stumble into the idolatry of fixating on the gifts we've received instead of the giver. He alone is our strength and our shield. We must put our trust first and foremost in Him. God alone is to be worshipped because a right relationship with God is what we need to thrive. It's the way we are created. Idolatry takes us down a path to destruction and inevitably becomes a snare, just as Israel discovered in their ongoing dalliance with Baal. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to susanme.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio. Edited by Buck Buchanan. Produced by Haley Mawatt.